Um, you know, we come to a, a, a season in our history, and I think here in bold terms, redemptive history, where we are somewhat back to the beginning. And what I mean by that is, while it's going through a transition, this idea of being a Christian, um, it's, it's going through a rebranding phase, a recontextualization phase, but quite frankly, it's going beyond rebranding now. Now, it could have been predicted. In fact, it has been predicted how it is that, that with the rise of what we describe as postmodernism, how truth, the truth, has become your truth. Very subtly, speak your truth. We hear it all the time. What's underneath a statement like that? It's the subjectivization of truth. Why is that? Because we live in a soup kitchen that has really, in a very academic sense, and now trickling in down to the masses, it's just not cool to believe in the truth. We also live in a context, of course, that's just global, which is a good thing. But with this globalization has become a, a good thing in the sense of a greater tolerance and even acceptance of other people, of other ethnicities, and other genders and other nations in our lives. That's a good thing. In fact, as we'll see it, it's the very core of the gospel. But you couple that with then your truth, the subjectivization of truth, and, and now even Christianity becomes a subjectivized concept. If you could turn it up a little bit more. And so what we have here is not only a season of rebranding, but a, into a contemporary context, it's being redefined what it means to be a Christian. The context is, is in our world today makes it now easy, in fact even acceptable, uh, to go to a church and to choose a church not merely by, you know, uh, a stylistic thing, but to choose a church that speaks my truth. A church that does not rise above my truth to a transcendent truth. And so I want to ask the question in the next couple of two or three weeks that I'm preaching. Uh, what is a Christian? And I know you're tempted to turn it off right now. Of course you think you know. But I want to go specifically more deep here. How would you go about answering it? That's really the question. What is a Christian? And how would you go about answering the question? Well, some of you are saying, well, oh, I'd go to the Bible. Mm, not good enough. What? Did I hear the pastor just say that? Actually, it is good enough. But how would you go to the Bible, perhaps, is the better way to say it's not good enough. I mean, some would say, well, I guess, you know, Christian, Christ, I'd, I'd start with the Gospels. I would want to look at Jesus. Not good enough. Now you're about to run out the door. No, it is good enough. But what do you mean? How would we interpret Jesus? How would we understand Jesus? How would we frame it? How would we contextualize what we read? Your truth becomes my context. My context reads my gender, my ethnicity, my personal experiences, my family lineage. It becomes my Jesus not the Christ. You 
See how subtle this is? We live in an era where Christianity more and more can be described as, well, uh, and I hear it more and more, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Buddhist Christian. Now, Buddhism would have no problem with that. Not necessarily, at least. But Christianity, at least historically defined, would. Why? Because Christianity is a religion about not just an abstract concept God, but a personal being who lives God. A God who therefore is one God, not many, and a one God who has manifest himself in a history of manifesting himself, which is recorded, of course, in our Holy Scripture, the longest unbroken story in the history of humanity. Did you know that? The longest unbroken story or narrative in the history of the world. Beginning with the beginning, in continuity with itself, it transgressions, er, transgresses every age into the age that we're presently in, even as it anticipates the age to come, and its continuing story that envelops not just a sect of the world, but the whole world. I hope that you're beginning to get the sense of the gravitas of what we're about to talk about. Can you leave this room today and say, there is the truth, a truth. And is that truth about Christianity the truth about Christianity? How would we know? You'd go to the Bible. Yeah, but not enough. You'd go to Christ, yep. But how would you interpret Christ? And so the word I want to give to you is a word often and forgotten, but it is maybe the most prominent word other than the word God in the Bible. It's a pretty bombastic statement, isn't it? It's the word covenant. It's the word covenant. What is a covenant? Well, biblically, the answer is found in, in this covenant. This, it's about a relationship with God. It's a relationship. It's, it's a covenant concerning the relationship of God. And what is that? Well, the best way I can describe a covenant is that well, it's, it's a birth certificate, or say a birthright. We hear about that today. It's a land deed. It's a mortgage statement, so to speak. It's a contract, behavioral contract, as to what we must do, or be, or whatever the contract would say, but it's how we relate to the promises of the covenant. Birth certificate, identity, land deed, place. It's a mission statement. It's a purpose statement. It defines the meaning of my life. Now, where would you find this covenant? Well, again, you would find it everywhere. In fact, so much so that you might just be tempted to miss it. That the covenantal orientation is just universally inherent to the redemptive history and the story of the Bible, well, it's evidenced by a fact that you probably forget, but the whole Bible is defined by old and new, what? Covenant. The whole Bible. We find here it is, um, in this transcending trajectory, both through the Old and New Testament, that the narrative is spoken of in terms 
of the story of covenant, culminating, of course, in Christ. This is perfectly illustrated then by this particular use of the old and new. Or better, the initiation of and the renewal of, as you will see. So, for instance, the prophet Jeremiah in the old covenant context anticipates the coming of a new covenant. Even as Paul in the new covenant context ref references the veil of the old covenant that was lifted in the renewed covenant that is brought to us by Christ. In the new covenant, Christ, uh, in the, in the new covenant you see how it is that, that uh, he comes into the scene saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the covenant. The law is the term Torah that is describing the covenant. He says, but or the prophets, that is, the covenant, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, heaven and earth shall not pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, the covenant, until all is accomplished. We discern this use of the law throughout the old and new. So now I ask you, what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? The answer, in biblical terms, is going to be defined by this covenant. Even as to be a Christ, and uh, to live with Christ is to live the life of the covenant. A covenantal relationship with God. And so where would we go? Where would you go to study this covenant? Well, as you got a glimpse of, even by Paul, you'll hear it in Christ throughout the Gospels. There is this constant reference to Abraham. An Abrahamic covenant where there was a kind of crescendo moment and covenant clarification which then will interpret and, and frame every successive restatement or rediscovery, renewal of that covenant. Paul's basic fundamental argument in the book of Romans is that this is not a new religion, one, Therefore, he methodically and, and laboriously uh, frames everything, I'm not lying, everything he says, he frames in the light of the covenant, and particularly of Abrahamic covenant. You see this amazingly to be sure. It's true, the covenant is given to us in creation, or we call it the creation manifestation of the covenant. And yet it's renewed. It's renewed with Noah in the exact same language, with the purpose clause, be fruitful and multiply. It's renewed again with Abraham and again with Moses and climactically, of course, in the great commission of Christ. But again, as argued by Paul in our New Testament writing, the Abrahamic version of the covenant is throughout the Bible used as the standard. It's where it came to a crescendo in the history of our people that defines how we understand the whole of redemptive history. So for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about this covenant, this covenant of Abraham. And I hope that you're not right now going, oh boy, it's going to get thick. Well, it might, but you're smart people. I'm not worried about that. But it's not going to be impractical. It's going to speak into your life and mine about our identity and about our purpose and about our hopes and our dreams. It's going to talk about how we relate to God as the most important thing that we could ever discern. And it's going to talk about who this God is.
And so today we begin part one. Notice how Paul frames this covenant of Abraham in Galatians, since we didn't read it. He says it this way, so you see those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. Did you hear that? <laughs> I mean, who's a Christian? Paul's answer? Oh, oh, of course, we all know that. They're descendants of Abraham. Did you know you're a descendant of Abraham? How so? Genealogically? No, that's not what he's talking about. He goes on to say, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, all the nations by faith, by faith, declared the gospel. Did you hear that? He declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. He goes on to further describe this a few verses later. Brothers and sisters, I give an example from daily life. Once a person's will, that will mean, that's what a covenant is. It's basically a last will and testament, if you will, of God. He says, um, he says, once a person's will has been ratified, no one adds to it or annuls it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, as of many, but it says unto your offspring. That is, to one person who is Christ. My point is this, says Paul. The covenant which came 400 years 30 years later does not annul, he's talking about Moses now, the Moses covenant does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. And so here we go. Chapter 17, a watershed chapter in the history of our people, Christians. Here we have by the time we get to chapter 17, the promises, the covenant to Abraham has been um, unfolding bit by bit, gradually building us and becoming more uh, 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 detailed and precise between Genesis 1 all the way through until Abraham, especially. And then we have it. From, the point, from this point in Genesis, the divine speeches become rarer. And little new content is added to the promises and fulfillment of this covenant, which is why we're going to start here. So here are the questions, if you're one of those that takes notes, that we want to answer. From this covenant today, we're going to ask the question, who exactly is God according to the Christian faith? What is the mission of God and subsequently our mission? Two, what is the promise given by the covenant to those who are in the covenantal relationship with God. Four, who are the people that is envisioned in this covenant? And five, by what means are these people included or not in the promise? Let's pray. Father, would you come by your Holy Spirit, bring this alive. Help us even now as we listen, to listen not simply for facts, but help us to listen existentially. If need be, put us in a crisis that we might rediscover ourselves, not as those in my truth, but in the truth, your truth, the truth that transcends all human truth. Help us, Father, we pray, to discover our unitedness in that truth as Christians in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
So, number one, who exactly is God? Let's be clear about this. There's a very description of God that begins chapter 17. He says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord, already we got a description, the Lord. That is a sovereign name. Appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. This word is El Shaddai. Perhaps you've heard the Christian songs if you've been around the, the subculture Christian world a little bit. El Shaddai, God Almighty. It wants to focus our attention not on what humanity does already. Already we are getting focused that whatever covenantal history is going to, to succeed this, this, this rendition, it's going to be the story about God. I want you to think about that, Sunday school teachers. I want you to think about that, Christian. There's not a passage in the Bible that if you have not first framed it as about God, that you've gotten the right vantage point. Today, we see Christianity re re being rebranded. It's being rebranded into our own uh, obsession with self-help. It's being rebranded into our own obsessions with our own uh, earthly or temporal identities. It's being rebranded into all sorts of subjective experiences. It's about the experience. It's about the, the drug that I'm going to get from the music. And we have here a covenant, and it wants us to focus this covenant and everything that's going to come from it on God. It's about God. Why? I mean, stop and think about El Shaddai and what that means. Almighty. According to Exodus 6.3, this was the name by which God was known to all the patriarchs. Almighty. That is to say there is no other mighty. Do you hear that? There's no other hope. There's no other power that can compete with or that can transcend the power and the mightiness of God. It would reframe every single circumstance of your life if you believe that. There's nothing so mighty that determines your circumstance than the mightiness of God. Every circumstance. Everyone. It's not some mighty, it's almighty. God decreed everything whatsoever happens. This gets to this idea of sovereignty, this authority of God that has no limits in its expanse. The sovereignty of God that has no limits in what it can accomplish. It's a miraculous God. It's not a God of our own making. It's not a God of our own imagination. It's not a God of our own brand and frame and all of that. God is almighty, who is here speaking to us. A personal God. I mean, we can't even get verse 1, and we could have another 
huge sermon on this verse if we begin to contextualize El Shaddai in the context of the rest of the scripture and how often it's the fundamental point of departure. At the very beginning, what is a Christian? It starts with, I believe in one God, Almighty. It frames everything. It means that our salvation now cannot be in any way ultimately contingent upon us. We may be a cause, we may be a secondary cause, but the secondary cause of our actions, our will, our volitions, our behavior, or whatever you want to call it, our morality, that will somehow be part of this covenantal framework, but it will not be the ultimate framework by which we understand even our salvation. For fundamentally, we're going to learn, even in the story of Abraham, how salvation is a miracle. It just doesn't happen in ordinary circumstances. It's a miracle. I mean, just anecdotally, how it is. Same family, Christian, not Christian. Same Bible study. I remember teaching a study in the University of Georgia in a fraternity house, and I would spend just, you know, some reason I had probably in my worldliness honed in on this one guy, man, I'm running with him, training for triathlons with him and all this other stuff, and man, I'm just pouring my life into him. He never came to Christ. Another guy walks in the room and lays down on the ground. He's, I think, half, you know, it was after a big party, and he lays down on the ground, and, you know, there's beer bottles all over the place where we're meeting, and he's lying there like this, and I think he's not listening to a word, and then after the body says, I want to become a Christian, while he's laying down with like this. <laughs> And I remember that was the turning point for me. I was in a big debate at the time with one of my staff members about the sovereignty of God and free will. That turned me. That turned me. God Almighty, we must be born again is another way that, that Jesus taught, described about it. The almightiness of God. You can't just get to this by being born of water, natural birth. You can't just get this by human will, says John in chapter 1. This is something that is almighty given. And every circumstance in our life is now somehow related to the purposefulness of God in redemptive history. That we might come to that place. It's amazing to think about the almightiness of God. Who is God? We see this in the story of Abraham. We talk about the birth of Isaac. In chapter, and this is what this, we're going to look at that a lot more next week in, in the lineage of the covenant, Isaac, and what that means. But the birth of Isaac, this, this is all predicated by this almighty God, God, because by faith, we're told in Hebrews, by faith, Sarah herself received power. She didn't have power. She received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Isaac was a miracle baby. Sound familiar? Isaac, we're told in Romans 4, as we read today, is a precursor to Christ. It's, it's literally the story of Christ. And on it goes. What does this tell us? Again, what power do you get religiously worked up about? Everything today is politicized. It's become a religion. 
And so often, and it gives me cringes, Jesus is named with both parties. Ouch. As if America, a nation state, is the object of Christ's death on the cross. Make me sick. Oh, so much greater. It's not about any nation state. It's about a people of every nations. A people of every ethnicity. A holy, royal nation is called, as Peter describes it. On it goes, populism, economic materialism, education, intellectualism, family nepotism, country nationalism, all of these have become almighty to us, if you would listen to us, and how we get riled up about this stuff. I think I might, you know, it's, I mean, we should be passionate about the common good. Let me just put that out there. It's not a sermon about that. We should be passionate about making this world a place of grace, common grace, and justice. We should be active in it, but fundamentally, we don't believe our activism or this or that political theory can accomplish what we're going to see is the promise of this utopian place that we all want and yearn for. That brings us to a second question. What's this mission of God, and therefore subsequently us who join in the covenant with him? It says at verse 2, that I may make covenant between me and you that, we might, that I might multiply you greatly. He goes on to say in verse 20, we'll read it next week, but here's what he says. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply greatly. He shall father believe princes and will make him into a great nation. This is a nation. This is a place of multiplication, but it's a common grace nation. Distinguished from here, Isaac. It's interesting. He didn't take his grace away from, from all people of all faiths and none. We see the evidence of it in the arts and the sciences and all sorts of things. But there is a kind of covenant unique to the Christian who is of the lineage of Abraham that is going to bring us to an utopian society. We see this covenant to be sure in Genesis 1.28, where it is. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I don't have time to exegete this. but. You can go back to the sermon I preached on many years ago. I might be preaching it uh, coming up soon. I'm not sure. I'm still thinking about it. But, but the idea being that, that this is not simply go make babies or go make a lot of corn. The way this phrase shows up in every single covenantal ratification ceremony, Noah to Moses to Christ, the prophets, Christ, on it goes, the, the apostles. It shows up over and over and over again, and it's always about what we've now come to discern is what Christians have called the Great Commission. Go ye therefore out to all the world, all the nations, making disciples of all nations, all peoples, all Gentiles, all ethnicities, all families, all genders. It's so inclusive, and it's all inclusive. That's the mission of God. God. Have you ever thought about this? God, in his very being, is a sent-defining God. He sent the Holy Spirit. He sends Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in the Father, 
by the Holy Spirit sends us in John 21. Just as the Father sent me, so I sent you. There is an inherent revelatory aspect about God. That's, that's what I, when you think about mission, at the heart of mission is a sentness, purposefulness about our lives. Do you know the difference? A self-help Christianity is going to say, it's about me and my flourishing. And it does make me flourish. And it is somewhat about my flourishing in Christ. But my fundamental concept of life, who I am, how do I evaluate my, my life, my, my joy? If you transcend this, this thing, I preached this sermon about four or five weeks ago on happiness. You can go back and look at it if you didn't hear it. I hope you will. But at the core, it's going to redefine you and your expectations about your life. Because God, the energy that makes God re even re do redemption is to self-reveal. We call it to glorify God. Now, I, I hear you. I mean, what kind of megamaniac makes it his ambition to glorify himself? God, who is actually almighty. To know God is to know the power that changes everything, that transforms everything. To reveal himself is an act of love. To reveal himself is an act of justice. To reveal himself is an act of wisdom. To reveal himself is an act of mercy. To reveal himself is an act of grace. You see where I'm going? Everything that is good and profitable is God Almighty. Oh and therefore, my whole life must be reoriented. This covenant has a sentness to it. Where Abraham's identity, even here, did you see what happened in this passage? This is a big bend. Abraham's name was changed around this purpose. It's like Preston Graham, the guy that's born into a common grace family. I get baptized. I didn't get baptized until I was 20 when I became a Christian. But if I had been baptized, and when I did get baptized as a Christian, it's, it needs to be reframed. Sometimes, in fact, I almost always ask the parent, by what Christian name do you present this child? The idea is to rebrand the name. It's no longer fundamentally Graham, but Christ. Covenant in Christ. If that's true, brother and sister, that's true. Reason with me for a moment. How you evaluate your life? Is it good? If you evaluate it under the happiness idolatry that's going around, then it's going to be circumstantial. It's good when everything's going my way, more or less. But if you understand yourself as sent by God in, in a journey towards a utopian place, and I say place because I mean place, not just an abstract, I mean temporal, you know, five senses place. We'll see. But if that's my journey, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm, there's a different way of thinking about my life. Someone asked me not long ago, are you happy? And I just didn't know how to answer it. But, but are you fulfilled? Yes, I am. And so far as I am in this great story of revealing God and of being part of the coming of the kingdom of God and and there's something, there's purposefulness in my life. There's meaning in my life. And I love that. It's, it transcends circumstance. You know what I mean? Do you know that? You, I know you've all touched that. Where you've been willing to suffer so much 
for something that just was really purposefully meaningful to you. I mean, I think back before I knew Christ and my relationship to sports. I mean, what I would put myself through just to make a, get a little weird ball over a touchdown line. Literally, halfback. I mean, what I would do, running the stairs until I would almost drop in Stegman Hall at University of Georgia, just, just pumping myself to put a football over a line, for God's sake. I mean, that's incredible. And I have the great opportunity and privilege to be trained and to be disciplined by God to participate in the most incredible and glorious and absolutely perfect line, the line that separates heaven and hell. This is discerned right here in this covenant. Second verse. This is God speaking. El Shaddai. And I'm naming you Abraham for your purpose, your vision in life. From this day forward is to participate in a nation that transfers, transcends all other nations that will involve every people group on the earth. Number three, what is the promise of being a given to a Christian? Well, it's going to be very Surprising and simple. Land. That's right. It's land. Now, maybe I'm just a bit uh, biased this way. Something about land intrigues me. I watch my wife, and she loves to garden. She, she t- describes putting her hand in the dirt as like heaven. Now, I'm, I'm not that far. I don't like land that much. Um, I do like the smell of it. But I do understand, there's just been this incredible, when you stop to think about history, how important land has been. Even in, in, even in just, you know, temporal history. How precious land is. How somehow it just makes you feel something that's right, that I have it. But let's don't spirit, subjectivize it. This is something much deeper. Just notice, though, already, verse 8, And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien. All the land in Canaan for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. This is re-edified, re reestablished. This has already been established to, uh, to Abraham earlier. In chapter 12, verse 7, he talks about all the land that you can see is what I'm giving you. Chapter 13, he says it again, and from the river of Egypt to the great river to the river of Euphrates. Now, I'm going to have to frame all this in a minute in this context of what that says, but that's, it's coming up again, land. And 1518, and to here in chapter 17, the, the first explicit reference to the land is the whole land of Canaan as a perpetual holding. Now that's really significant. While the land of Canaan was a one-level description, what we're going to find is how this language of land is going to get reinterpreted over and over and over again in a way that it becomes increasingly symbolic about the whole earth, the whole earth, an earth that is believed to be just flourishing, as in that segment between the rivers in the ancient Near East. That's the idea of this. We see this in Hebrews 11, just so you know it's not being made up. By faith, we're told, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that was, was to receive as an inheritance 
And he went out not knowing where he was going. By, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents, and Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking, get this, for to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is, who do you think? El Shaddai. And by faith, then, he goes on to describe this. They all died, not having received, though, the things of promise. Hold on, I thought he reached the promised land. Well, he did. But he never reached the promised land. He reached a type. And it goes on to say here in verse 11, he said this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak this thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, here's the importance, they desire a better land, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We go to Revelations and we see not Christians going up to an abstract city. What you see in Revelations is a city that is abstract, coming down like an antitype to the type, if you will, if you know philosophical language, this idea of a, of a city of God, all in its paradigms and patterns, coming in and enveloping the earth itself. Isn't that cool? Land, real land, becoming our homeland, all of it. Just put your bucket list in that, okay? And get busy being missional on this earth. But there's a bucket list. We all got it, and it's coming. Just not in this life, this life. Isn't that incredible? It's kind of an idea, therefore, theologians will understand that when we're in the Old Testament, we have this sort of two level. Level one is this typology level, this sort of introducing this concept, giving a concrete reality. But don't negate the fact that it's always concrete. It's not abstract. Don't too quickly diminish these fights about land because we're fighting for heaven. Even if it's the wrong way to get it, obviously. Through colonization, etc. Four, who are the people envisioned? I don't think I need to defend this too much from the scripture, but uh, hopefully, but I'll read it here. Verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of ethnicities. That word could be translated that way, nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have much, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you exceedingly fruitful. Same word given to Adam. Great Commission, given a creation. Multitude of ethnicities. The same language was given to Noah, as I said, Abraham, etc. It's repeated here, one, it's repeated here 13 times in chapter 17. 13 times the word covenant is, is interpreted in this context. It's a huge thing. Who are these people? Well, it's everybody. Everyone is envisioned to be there. Not everyone individually necessarily, but every ethnicity, every tribe. Now we go to Revelations and what do we see? We go to the epistles and what do we hear? We hear things like there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There is no distinction between male and female. There is no distinction between this class and that class. 
It is this incredible and beautiful promise that the people who call themselves now Christians, who define themselves as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, cannot explicitly or most importantly implicitly define themselves as fundamentally a political or ethnic community not political in the worldly sense. I guess in the ultimate sense, there is a politic. There is a polity, if you will, of God in the church. That's another sermon, isn't it? How do we do it implicitly? How do we begin to lose our identity? How do we relate to one another? Do we profile each other? I'm looking at a congregation, beautiful. Increasingly, it's, it's becoming incredibly multi-ethnic. And, and I'm looking at people, and I see the black and the brown and the white and and all of a sudden, I become a racist, not because I would think that in the philosophical sense that there's anyone here that is inferior or superior, but I start to profile you. I start to say, well, you know, this is what a black, brown, white, yellow, whatever person acts like or is or what they believe. Or maybe I define you by your gender fundamentally. You know, I'm a white man. You're a woman. Off we go. Really, fundamentally, working against who we are. Now listen to me, I want you to listen to this very carefully. I know that I, there's so much qualification in this context right now that I want to make. It's not to render unimportant these identities. They're beautiful identities. When we get to heaven, we're not all neutered. We're not all beige. We're gonna get to heaven and it's a glorious, fantastic, celebration, explosion of identity reality coming into play where I believe the speaking of tongues like an axe is going to be in heaven. I really do. I can't prove it. We're all going to speak every ethnicity language. We're going to understand everybody in the miraculous heaven that we'll live in, but without reducing the beauty, the beauty, the color. It's a colorful place, this heaven. It's an expression at place, this heaven, if you go read about it. And they're all somehow together singing one song to God. Gosh, I'm starting to get really crazy here. I, I need to take a drink or something. This is big. This is beautiful. But what makes that happen is when I say I'm a Christian, fundamentally, I relate to you in a covenantal sense. I relate to you as a people of covenant. A people, you see, whose fundamental identity is in Christ. One that gives us hope that there's a starting point towards reconciling our created identities together in submission to this covenant. It's a beautiful thing. And finally, by what means are these people included or not in the promise? That's part of the contract as well. Verse 1, there's this peculiar phrase that makes anyone, if you read it immediately in the English, it's going to make you feel very uncomfortable. You want to hear it? It says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. 
this, and you look at the Hebrew, and I can give you a bunch of grammatical junk here that I've got here in my text, but at the end of the day, so that means so that. There is a condition clause here, very clearly. This, con this condition clause says that we relate to the covenant by, again, walking before God and being blameless. Does that mean that Abraham and the covenant of Abraham is by works? That is, now, would it mean, do you think, is God this irrational? That after calling himself El Shaddai and after defining himself as the miracle worker and all of creation being an aspect of that, would he now just turn around and undermine that whole El Shaddai and say, oh no, I forgot, ooh, ooh, ah, I forgot. There's one thing where you are all powerful, where it's your power that's gonna control the whole thing. This is that link, you know, that we call that little weak link in the middle of a big chain. Here it is. There is this link. I, I, I forgot to tell you, you've got to be blameless. Sounds like he's saying without sin. Perfect. Under the law. Well, the problem with that is that Abraham himself declares that his death that he, while he walked blameless, he's, without, he's not without sin. What does that mean? The problem is that when you read the New Testament, and we believe the New Testament given to us by God as well, that Paul defines the Abrahamic covenant as where we discern and discover the meaning of grace, not works righteousness. What does he mean, walk before me? It's often used to describe a person's disposition. To walk before God is to walk in the presence of God. It's to be dependent upon God. It's to see and understand out of God's almightiness that God and God alone is sufficient. So it's to trust in the sufficiency of God. We see this in various other passages of Scripture. Notice how uh, this is revealed in the description of other people. In Genesis 6, these are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Notice those two things going together. You start picking those things up when you're a Bible interpreter and you go, i got to look at this. There is some kind of formulaic thing going on here. And you see it again in Enoch. You see it again in Abraham. This walk with God, blameless. Putting them together, it is simply a, 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 a formula for saying walk by faith. Walk in the sufficiency of God, wherein we are blameless. Now, this becomes really clear in chapter 15. You're reading 17, you didn't get to read 15 today, but 15 is very, very clear. And it's, and it's clear because there's the statement that Paul will quote in Romans where it is said that, 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 Paul, that, uh, that Abraham believed on God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Chapter 15, when God gave the promise. That word righteousness is a covenant term. It's a forensic or legal term. It's to say that you're justified. That you are righteous according to your relationship to the covenant. You know, I could, I could go right now, well, 
Bill Stuntz, who used to be a law professor here, told me once that, that we're all breaking law every day somewhere in the code. There's so many now codes and so many laws, you could probably take anyone to court and find something to sue them. Now, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer or a law professor by any means, but so maybe that's not what I'm about to say is not true, but let's just see, at least assume that, that, that presumably, while you are certainly not a, uh, a, a perfect person, you could say at least with respect to the American justice system, I am blameless. I'm considered what? Innocent until proven guilty. I'm blameless. I'm without need to be justified because I'm already justified by virtue of my relationship to this contract that we have here. That's the point of what's being said here. The point that's being said, and how do I know this? Because here's another clue. So clue number one is that this phrase shows up in many cases where it's clearly about grace. But two, what was Abraham's response? He fell on his face. What does that mean? He didn't get up and start working. He fell on his face. He put himself in the mercy of God. To fall on your face, to kneel as we do when our, we do our confession is an act of basically saying, God, I release my energy, I release my will, I release my wisdom, I release my power, I release it to you. I prostrate myself into your midst. I put myself at your mercy. Just this week, I had a chance to talk to, about being a Christian to my neighbor. It was unbelievable. They come out of a Catholic context and they just, you know, had this theory about how we get to heaven and you got to be good enough. You don't need to be a saint, but you got to be good. Uh, and off we went. And I said, well, you know, that scares the behejas to me. And I told them, you know, basically the gospel. And they just loved it. They said, yeah, I'm going to go to your church. But it was just really a fun conversation. But what was very interesting there was trying to image this. I'd say, basically, if you go to, if, you know, you go to heaven, and you're not going to see Peter probably. Don't, that's not the pearly gate experience. It's going to be Jesus. He's the judge. And let's just say, hypothetically, Jesus says, well, why should I let you into heaven? You know, what's, what's the condition for coming into this great land that I promised you? And if you say, well, I was, you know, not as bad as Billy Bob, but, you know, I, I, did, I did pretty good. I wasn't a saint, but I was pretty good. What, what have we done, basically? We got up and we walked apart from God. We're accounting ourselves not as walking with God. We're now walking apart from God in my self-reliance, in my self-sufficiency. That is, that is like the greatest offense you could possibly do. To go up to God and say in so many words, well, you know, I'm entitled to it. Why? Because I've been a pretty good person. No. The response you see throughout all of redemptive history is this response by Abraham, where he flings himself at the feet of Christ. To say, I'm in person. I put myself in person. I want to end with that. I, there's so much that I wish we could talk about, and we will next week, and the week probably after that. But Paul says that it's for the promise that we, he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his ascents through the law, by us keeping laws, but through the righteousness of faith. That's chapter 4, verse 13. So what does this covenant life look like? Let me just summarize it this way. Number one, it's to, have the, it's to put our faith and our reliance upon a personal God who is alone, almighty, in everything. It's to reorient your whole life in every circumstance. What's happening in your life right now? Can you reframe it covenantally? It's decreed by God. His purposes may be absent from your mind right now. But somehow it's related to this story of the promise of an eternal life.
belief and reliance upon a personal God who is alone almighty. What other mighties do you put your reliance on? Well, how would you know? Just let someone try to take it away. You'll know. You'll get angry or you'll panic. How would you know? What do you stay up being anxious about? Are you anxious at night about your relationship with God? Well, at least you got one thing. He's the one you ought to be anxious about. We call it the fear of the Lord. Hopefully you found the grace of the gospel so that it's taken away all fear. But yeah, that's who you need to be concerned about. Are you right with God? Because he alone is almighty. Number two, to live purposeful, intentional lives is to glorify God and expand his mightiness to every extent of our life and our world. To see yourself purposeful as having that purpose, going to work every day, going to church every week, all the things that we do, the way we order our lives. Are you doing good? How you doing? The answer could be, insofar as I am part of this great story and I'm active in it, I'm doing good. I may be suffering, I may be on the pinnacle of dying, but I'm doing good. Because I'm in that purposeful life, that meaningful life. There's something bigger than myself. I've been called, my name, and my baptism was changed. Christian. Number three, to embrace every family, tribe, ethnicity, race, nationality, gender, as all covenantal people, potentially or actually. Paul would say it this way, I'd suffer all things for the sake of the elect. You know why he said it that way? Because elect embodies two groups of people. Those who know themselves to be Christians or are members of some gospel believing church, they're the elect. But it's also the word elect gets before the decision. That's why I use the word. It's those who are a member of the gospel living church but don't know it. We call that unbelievers. And he said, I will suffer anything for the elect because it transcends Israel and Greek. Male and female. Class A, class B. Think about that for a while. How will it change the way you relate to one another in this room? How we would listen to each other. At our core, we're listening to a brother and sister in the covenant. And to live and let others live wherein they are accepted and justified by faith alone. It's a grace-centered life. It's a life that says, if God forgave me, I can forgive you. How many times did God forgive you? Too many times to count. So that's how much I'm going to forgive you. I just love the covenant, don't you? I just love this stuff. God give us the grace to experience it. Really. 